Okay, well last week we looked at uh, the issue of authority and the sufficiency of scripture and I want to start there. Um, In fact, if you'll go to Isaiah, we'll, uh, we'll start right there, 66. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. And particularly the second part. After God has uh, reiterated the Davidic covenant in verse 1, uh, or at least alluded to it, and what basically what the Davidic covenant starts off with is what David thinks he can do for God, remember? And God says, well, what's the house you're going to build me, you know, and so on. And, and it... it uh, it's a, a, a reason for God to say, look, he doesn't need anything from us. We're the ones who need things from him. But there's a way of receiving, which is important, a way of receiving things from him. And so, uh, the latter part of verse 2 says, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Poor doesn't here mean uh, not any, any money. It just means um, like poor in spirit, humble and, and so on. Contrite is another word for uh, like repentant and, uh, and humbled and feeling that uh, you know you are wrong and you want to be right. That kind of person is ready to not just hear the word of God, but tremble at the word of God, because they see their need of it. They see that the scripture alone will do. The scripture alone is sufficient. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time looking last week at the sufficiency of scripture. And uh, this issue of, of authority, you know, and how scripture is sufficient, because to say that it's not sufficient is to say that God's not very good at giving us what we need as far as a guidebook for our life. You know, that there's a whole bunch of stuff we've got to seek out ourselves that he hasn't bothered to put in. And uh, we cannot really hold that position and believe that scripture is God-breathed. Obviously, because we uh, a God-breathed book which is not sufficient for us doesn't really make very much sense. We spoke somewhat about worldview last week. I won't uh, go over that again. And then I did say something about the fact that, that one of the great things about the Bible and one of the great things that we're always presented with in Scripture is that there's no excuse for sin. There's no excuse for not doing the will of God. There's no excuse. You can't call upon the kind of individual you are, your personality, your background, your past, um, all the woes that, you, you know, both physical, mental, marital, um, whatever, that you might want to lean on. You can't lean on those when it comes to God. He's not interested, quite honestly. 
it's like, well, yeah, you can say I'm a type A personality. So what? Gods are not interested. So being a type A personality means you're not, you don't do what I tell you to do. Being passive aggressive means that it's okay to be the way that you are. Do you see? Being an angry person, maybe because of your past. Because you, have, you had angry parents or you had things, injustices in your past that make you angry or whatever. You've seen things, you have struggled with anger. Um, that all might be true. So that, that's all stuff you've got to get over because God says you've got to get over it. Do you see? The word of God is only helpful to you if you give it that kind of clout, if you give it that kind of authority. Uh, it's not that, please don't get me wrong here, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that these things that I've mentioned are not things that have to be spoken through and, and that are particular issues that need to be dealt with, but they are sin issues. You say, how can these all be sin issues? What if I've been abused in the past? That wasn't me. I didn't sin. Uh, no, you didn't sin as far as the abuse is concerned. That's true. That's true. And your abuser will be judged. But maybe the way that you are responding now to it, maybe the way you are leaning upon it now, maybe the damage that you're allowing in your own lack of development in your spiritual life is due to the fact that you won't get over this. And you, why won't you get over it? Because you won't do what God tells you to do. Do you see? You won't do what God tells you to do. Because um, these kinds of things, you can let them dominate you, you can let them have power over you. You can let them depress you. You can let them spoil you, ruin you. Or you can give them to God. And you can, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the resurrected Christ within you and by the word of God, you can obey God knowing that he's forgiven you actually more and... You can move on with your life. All of that's in the past. It doesn't have to dictate your future. It's a reality in your past, but it doesn't have to be the way you go forward. Okay? So God doesn't accept excuses. If you only knew what I've been through, you wouldn't be telling me these things. You know, somebody that you counsel might be, might say that to you. Well, you don't understand why I'm so angry, why I'm so bitter. Uh, you don't understand. I can't forgive that person. And you have to talk to them so that you do come to some more of an understanding, so you understand the str what they're struggling with. But only so as to try to bring them to what God says they need to do, whether it is uh, forgiveness or uh, you know an end of their bitterness towards that person. I mean, we've all got these issues that we must face. Uh, next, and that what comes 
naturally after that is that that there is compassion that you should show compassion and sympathy uh, for the person that you're counseling this is very very important actually because just showing that you care just showing that you care is huge you don't even have to have the answer sometimes you don't have the answer and it's dumb to try and think you can get the answer but what you can do is listen carefully what you can do is show that uh, you sympathize maybe some of you will be even able to empathize because of what you've been through in um, psychiatry and psychology often they will tell them to have a, a distance between themselves and the and the patient you see so that the, the, the psychologist or the, the therapist is somebody who uh, is rather dispassionately listening to the problem. But that's not what God says. Okay? God says, bear one another's burdens. It does say, bear ye your own burdens. That's the no excuses part. But we're also to bear one another's burdens. And remember what I've already said about the fact that when it comes to uh, those tests and trials that have been done, say for whatever, PTSD, or whether for uh, depression, or many of these other issues, many of these things that are called disorders uh, by the psychological uh, community, that often just having a friendly ear is just as effective as psychological counseling and drugs. Now, I do believe that biblical counseling, sympathetic biblical counseling, is much more effective than either of those two. Can anyone maybe tell me why that might be the case? Take a stab at it. <laughs> because if somebody if somebody is um, just giving a listening ear, okay, they may not be producing scripture. They they may not be dealing with the issue, the the heart, the mind, the thinking, okay, the processes that are going on, which are themselves destructive and are causing the anxiety or the pain. Yes, but those are what a counsellor is aiming at. He's aiming to get the person to be more conformed to Christ, for them to die to themselves and live to Christ, to um, divest themselves, in a sense, of their own wisdom and their own thoughts, and to put themselves on the altar and to think God's thoughts after him. Okay? Romans 1, Romans 12, 1 and 2, First uh, Corinthians 10, uh, what is it, 10.5, and these passages, okay, which, which speak about the fact that we have to um, allow God's word to have its way in our own thinking. Now, when we do that, then our outlook is different. And when our outlook becomes different, then the habits that we've formed because we had a certain outlook will 
gradually begin to change because our outlook is not that way anymore. It's now a different way, do you see? So, um, a person may have a problem with, uh, with loneliness, uh, sadness, depression, and so on, all understandable things. So, a lonely person, if a lonely person is always conscious of the fact that they're on their own, if they're always thinking about the fact that they're sad, that there isn't anyone for them, and so on. Do you see, if they're always doing that, then those are very unhelpful, unedifying thoughts to have in your head all the time. And it wouldn't be surprised if you became depressed over that. So what you have to do is you have to say, look, I'm not, I'm not going there with that. I prayed to God, I've given it over to God, it's up to God now, I'm going to get on with what God wants me to do, because in the sovereignty of God I believe that he has this for me, that's right in front of me. And I can't change my aloneness, I can't change my um, physical, you know, pain or whatever it might be. But I can change the way I think about it. I can change my outlook by adopting God's outlook on this. And when you do that, your focus is not on yourself anymore, your focus is on God, on his word, on others, on what God has for you, and so on. So clearly your outlook and your, your emotional symptoms will change. Do you see that? Does that make sense? So biblical counselling, using the Bible to, to rearrange the mental furniture in a person's head so that it actually, you know, it's feng shui for the head. Um, doing that helps the individual, not just in the way of a friend who offers sympathy, which is great, or in a therapist who offers whatever the therapist offers, because they all differ, depending on who they follow or what mixture of different schools they adopt. And it gives them an opportunity to take on board God's wisdom and move forward on that. When you do that, there is clearly going to be an improvement because the reliance is upon God, what he says, and God knows us better than we know ourselves. You, you, you just, what you need to do first before you do that, although that's good, but what you need to do first is, is to reorient their thinking. Do you see? So you've got to listen to them to find out how they're thinking. Okay, if their thinking is, is, uh, if you could map it, if it was always like this, you know, so, so every conversation was, you know, there's not very much edification going on when you talk to them, then clearly you've got work to do to get them to think differently. And so you identify the issues, usually, actually it's, it's um, they're thinking about themselves too much, which is pride. Okay, it's pride. And so you, you get them to humble themselves before the hand of God 
and see what God wants them to do and focus on God and on others. And when they do that, when they go home and when they sit, say a lonely person, they sit on their own and so on, when that happens, they they don't adopt the habits that are going to make them depressed. They adopt other thinking habits which are going to uh, make them joyful, make them hopeful, make them know God loves them, they're not alone, that they're with the Lord who is with them all the time. The Holy Spirit resides in them. They can get up and, you know, with zest and face the day. So, uh, it's important that we understand, therefore, that even though we say to the person there are no excuses, because that's what the authority that they're under says, um, at the same time, we are to be compassionate. We are to show sympathy. And um, that's what Christ was like. Do we, do we need to show examples of that? There are some wonderful examples of that. If you'll go to uh, Mark chapter 7. Let's just go there quickly. Mark 7. At the end there, this is part, uh, I I heard uh, actually a chap preach on this uh, a week or two back and uh, he really did a great job of of, uh, showing what I'm about to show you here. Verses 31 to the end there, Mark 7. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude. Okay. Why do you think Jesus took him aside? There's a multitude following Jesus wherever he goes. Okay. This guy's deaf. This guy's deaf. All he sees is a bunch of, you know, people clamoring. He can't hear them. He doesn't, if he doesn't see Jesus, he's probably never seen Jesus before, then he doesn't know who this person is. He doesn't know what they're clamoring about. Unless somebody can communicate with him. Do you see? So they bring him to Jesus, but he doesn't know what for. So Jesus takes him away from the crowd. Alright? Then what does he do? Put his fingers in his ears. Why do you think Jesus did that? Maybe to show him that Jesus knows about his ears. Like communicating to him that I know you have a hearing problem and puts both fingers in in his ears to communicate perhaps I'm going to heal you. Alright? And he spat and touched his tongue. That's kind of an interesting detail, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of those details that, that you sometimes find in Mark. Uh, he, he's the recorder of Peter. And somebody who was an eyewitness would, would know something like that, okay? Somebody just writing a story wouldn't bother to put that in. But he spat and, and touched his tongue. Why did he spit? I'm not really sure. But, 
it probably has something to do uh, with the fact that I understand that you, you know, you have problems with speech, of speech impediment too. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. And uh, the idea here of speaking plainly is he spoke very well. Okay, He spoke very well and he heard very well. And uh, Jesus, you see, could have just said the word, couldn't he? Couldn't he have just said the word? But he didn't. He communicated. He stopped. He took the person aside. Took some time to deal with him one-on-one. Okay? And his need one-on-one. Do you see that? So, there's an example for you. And again, uh, the beginning of Mark, one of my favorite passages. Uh, I always remember when uh, I read... Alexander McLaren's sermon on this. And it's in uh, Mark 1, verse 40. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, do you see that? Stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Okay. Um, where's the sympathy there? What does Jesus do that is so special? He touched him. Who is it that he's touching? A leper. You don't go around touching lepers. Okay. You're supposed to keep your distance from them. But Jesus, this man therefore had probably not been touched for a long time. Okay? So Jesus in healing him, okay, spoke uh, with his touch that spoke a word of acceptance, a word of love and compassion to him. Did he? Did he not? Uh, as McLaren says, I had a little quote here, the characteristic of true pity is that it overcomes disgust. And, um, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a metric for us. Sometimes we might be dealing with somebody who've, who's um, led a, a very sinful, wicked life in the past. And, and we're dealing with them now. We're trying to untangle the mess. We have to listen to their story. Okay, We might be disgusted by some of the things that they've done, some of the people they, that they've hurt. But our compassion, if we're going to help them, we need to be sympathetic with them. Do you see? Not No excuses, but we also are to uh, show sympathy. Wisdom, I'll come to. And I want to say a little thing about human authority, and I think in our day this is very important. Uh, human authority, as I've already said, is, is characterized by autonomy or independence. Not me. Ever since the fall, this has been our default. My black's not working here. 
try let's do blue. Okay? All the bizarre. And so because we're we try to be independent from God, we are suckers for foolishness. You know? We're gonna it's easy for us to be foolish. Um, you've been foolish, I've been foolish, the people that you counsel have been foolish. And often you'll find they're still thinking foolishly when they come and see you, when they talk to you. Now, what you don't say is, you idiot, you know, you're a fool. You don't say that. You, you speak to them about, you know, the, the human need and about the importance of depending on God and the fact that you can depend on God. And when you have faith in God, it pleases God. It's the way of wisdom, therefore, that you are inculcating. Human authority, though, for, therefore, is uh, the opposite of, of wisdom. There's various things that that uh, human authority can uh, can bring in instead of wisdom. First of all, personal preference. <laughs> really, preference. I mean, they've uh, especially in our uh, oversatiated, hyper-privileged age age that we live in. We're the most privileged generation probably ever. Okay. I mean, people aren't. I'm going to get a little bit controversial, though it's not controversial. It's not controversial, it's just true. Okay? There is, there is no one people group or, or whatever, whether it's blacks or women or, or whatever, there's no marginal group that isn't exceptionally privileged to live in America. Okay? Nobody living today was a slave and neither were their parents. Okay? But they can choose to hold on to that ghost, which may or may not be the case in their individual case, and they may choose to identify white males as slave owners, although not everybody was a slave owner, of course, even back then. And even some people, like Robert E. Lee, who is often called a racist, was not a racist and hated slavery. But, um, you know, there's a lot of women say, for example, nowadays that um, um, men get paid more than women. No, they don't. No, they don't. They do if you just look at the pay scales. But if you look at the work that they do, no, they don't get paid more. In fact, uh, when you look at the same money for the same job, women get paid slightly more nowadays. So, again, we're living in a very privileged age, but the preference may be to see oneself as a victim. Okay? Because if you see yourself as a victim, clearly if you're a victim, it's not your fault, is it? So we watch out for preference. 
Again, reasons and excuses, which I've kind of covered, you know. Um, well, my husband treats me really badly. You know, he's always working. Okay, so that's an excuse for you to go and have an extramarital affair, is it? No. Now, that doesn't mean that the husband isn't sinning. But a person cannot use another person's sin as an excuse for their sin. God doesn't accept it. Uh, sentimentalism. Right? Sentimentalism. Schmaltz. And so on. Um, people are very teddy bearish with um, with problems nowadays instead of, of confronting them as real issues. Okay? No, that's wrong. That's a sin. Don't do that. It's bad. It's evil. It's wicked. That's what the Bible says about all of our different problems. But we tend not to do that. We tend to be all squishy and sentimental about these things, don't we? If if you see that a person who's coming to you for counselling and, and is getting sentimental or getting uh, all emotional or affectatious, then you've got to call them on it. You've got to say, well, you know, we're going to get anywhere speaking about your problems like that. We have to treat them as sins. We have to treat them as enemies. We have to treat them as issues to be dealt with if they're going to be... Um, if you're going to, to get through this. And of course, foolishness uh, is endemic. <laughs> um, nowadays, I, I just, uh, I suppose I should say something about this. I've been trying to educate myself a little bit about uh, the wackiness of um, the, especially the American, but really the Western world. And, uh, you know, the leftist mindset, because um, the, the, they're not interested in the facts. The facts are right there. They're, they're easy to find. OK, if you want to have facts about homosexuality, do, you know, they, they say I was born homosexual. This person can't help being homosexual. You should uh, accept them because they can't help being a homosexual. Well, according to a study at Johns Hopkins University a couple of years ago, there's no evidence scientifically for that at all. It's not in the genes. There's absolutely no evidence for it. That's the fact. Transgender movement. I know, I understand that, that gender isn't about um, your X and Y chromosomes. That's They've redefined gender. Gender is is what you feel you are. So you might wake up and feel like a boy. You might wake up and feel like a girl. You might wake up and feel like an it. Or a bunch of other things. I think there are 20 different genders that uh, some cities you can choose from, like in New York. Um, you will see that, that um, if, you, if you talk to, to some of these uh, politically correct people, they certainly don't believe in absolute truth. That's the foundation of this silliness nowadays. And um, I've seen interviews of college kids and university kids where the interviewer said, um, 
So if I said I was three foot two, because that's that's the way that I see myself, is that okay? Would that be okay? And they've said, yes, if that's the way. And this person's six foot. Do you see the silliness uh, of this? And and this is because of human autonomy. This is the the this is because of the uh, the authority of uh, you know false philosophies and so on that they're believing. And it doesn't matter about the facts. It doesn't matter about um, any of this stuff. All that matters is. You know, are you, are, you actually are a hero, yes. Uh, the ultimate hero in the intersectionality world of the universities today, intersectionality, by the way, is, is uh, that really dumb belief that if you are a white male, you're at the bottom of the heap because you're, you're the person who is responsible for the victimizing of everybody else. Okay? So white males have had it. Okay, uh, above them, um, you know, you might have straight white females. Okay, they're better because they're women, because they so they have that kind of victim thing. But straight white and so on, conservative, that's no good. Then you you go back, you go up to black males, and you go up to or Asians or whatever. Then black males and black females, and really, and then gays. And transgenders, and, and really the ultimate person, the great paragon of this view would be somebody who was a, you know, a black transgender female dwarf. Wouldn't they? You know, because they, they, they're victimized all the way down, aren't they? And that person couldn't be, no matter what stupidity came out of their mouth, that person couldn't be criticised. Because if you criticise them, you'd be racist, you'd be uh, against their dwarfism, you'd be against their, you, you know, the, you'd be anti-feminist, you'd be anti-gay. Do you see? So, I, wh- why am I saying this? It's because this is what you might encounter this kind of view in the future okay you may even encounter it in your kids after they've been to college and university for a while particularly in this state so um, yeah foolishness and so on just beware of of that understand what's going on and a person like that doesn't have to have facts a person like that doesn't have to um behave themselves at all. A person like that can be horrible, they can be vindictive, they can be mean to you, they can even be violent because um, they believe that that just you, being the kind of person you are, like a white male, that's violence against them. Just holding an alternative opinion to their opinion is violence against their opinion. So you're a violent person, you're the transgressor, and therefore they will respond, often with physical violence against you, certainly with intimidation and so on. Why am I talking to you about this? It's because um, this is sweeping through our, well, swept through our universities, 
sweep it, and it's going to be something that we deal with in the future. And people will be seriously messed up because of this. Just think, if you, if you, is there anything more divisive than intersectionality? Where a person can't be just who they are, doesn't matter, doesn't matter if they're black or white, doesn't matter if they're male, female, it doesn't matter, even if they're, they're gay or straight. Okay? That doesn't have to define them, does it? I mean, they're, they're people, they're more than the color of their skin, they're more than their sexual orientation, they're more than, um, you know, whether they're male or female. But this kind of thinking, what does it do? Labels them, puts them into a box, and they are supposed to act according to the way people say that you act if you're in that box. And if you act that way, you are, you are said to be woke. That's the, that's the word. You are woke to, I know, bad grammar, to who you are, your victimhood. They believe it because it's, it, they've been told that it's, that they are victims and it's all about them and their victimhood and the oppressors are out there. Do you see? People that disagree with them. So, obviously, this is rampant foolishness and it's going to end up in a lot of heartache. It's going to end up with a lot of, um, disorders. <laughs> If I can use, I mean, psychological problems in in these people, and emotional problems. Yes. They just keep inventing new ones. Oh yes, they, and they will keep inventing. So, so I hope that you can see because these people learn to be miserable. They learn to be victims. They learn, you know, to identify themselves by these these pointless labels, the the color of their skin. So what? It doesn't matter if you're black or white or what. What's that got to do with who you are as a person? Male or what's that got to do with it? You're still the image of God, aren't you? You're more than that. You're capable of more than that. The Christian worldview is is saying that you're much, much more than than all of this. And if you if you limit yourself to that and identify yourself like that, then you will have problems. And there will be lots of problems with these people in our churches because this stuff comes into the church and, uh, and people that you deal with. Okay, So that's why I'm, I, I highlighted that a little bit. And the only way of dealing with them is with patience and with compassion and with prayer. And then to show them that actually there's another way. There's another way. Okay? Alright. So human authority will always, you know, bring you to an impasse. Now certain people who are not Christians, of course, can be very moral people and very stable and very nice people. But often it's because they imbibe Christian values while not themselves being Christian. But they understand Christian values and the importance of those values. 
Okay. So the next thing that we need to look at is um, there's human authority and we've got to get a person under God's authority. There's this idea of labeling and I've just kind of dealt with that a little bit with the intersectionality movement, with uh, you, know, you see it with the gay-lesbian movement. Um, we understand that, that homosexuality is a sin in the Bible. We're not, we're not here okay with gay marriage before God. I mean, whatever the, whatever the, um, the culture does, that's what the culture does. But within the church, we shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be an issue for us. However, we label it as sin, but we don't label the person with that sin. So that's all that we see. Do you understand that covetousness is an abomination before God? It's called an abomination. Do you know any covetous Christians? It's like witchcraft and idolatry, according to Colossians. So, so are we not sometimes hypocritical when we try and label a person because they have a lifestyle or a sexual orientation or whatever it might be that is different from what we think, you know, is the way we uh, God has made them? Well, God didn't make you covetous. God didn't make you proud. But there's an awful lot of pride in the Christian church. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because people are valuable, folks. People are valuable. They're more than, than uh, you know, just one sin or one part of them. And unless you see that, you're not going to be able to help them. Do you see? You don't label people like that because people are, you know, there's much more to them than that. So a person um, struggling with um, homosexual behavior, a Christian struggling with homosexual behavior may come to you. What are you going to do? Just blurt a bunch of Bible verses in their face and say repent or perish? Or are you going to listen to them? Are you going to listen to their struggle? Are you going to sympathize with their struggle? Because many of them struggle greatly. And are you going to carefully try to uh, explain to them it is a sin? And so it has to be dealt with as a sin. And yet, you know, it's... God will walk with you through this struggle. And it's the same with so many other things. You know, let's say depression as well. So if somebody is, is depressed and they come and they talk to you and you listen to them and you have to probably listen to them quite a bit to get to the root of the problem. But you don't just say once you've listened to them, you don't say, okay, uh, stiff up a lip, you know, chin up, cheer up. You have to help them to undo the thinking 
and the habits of thinking, and maybe the habits now that, the, that their thinking has got them to, to do the regimen that they have got, and that regimen is often like get up out of bed in a certain way and just do mundane things, you know, without any purpose, because there's no point. And you have to change that so that you can change the outcome. And you can only do that if you sympathize, you can only do that if you care, you can only do that if you're wise. Um, and uh, you're awake to what's going on. All right. Any questions about any of that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Then what if they say, well, you know, if I have human nature, I, I really can't change it, I too hard. Yeah, what happens when a person says that this sin, if they identify it as a sin, uh, it's too hard? I, well, you know, you can say, yes, I understand it's hard. You know, I don't struggle in that area, but I, I understand that it's hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's okay. And remember, they're there because of that. They're there talking to you because they're miserable. Do you see? Now, you might be able to say some things to a person like that uh, that will, it doesn't deal with the, the particular issue that, uh, that's central, but you may be able to say some things which, when they go away, you've given them something that they can um, refer to. Something that they can use as an alternative to the way that they've chosen. Yes, you've got to listen to them um, You've got to listen to them before you know what scriptures to deal with. I mean, you can certainly, um, I do this all the time. I say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. It's the final authority. I'm going to use the Bible and everything I'm going to tell you is biblical. Okay, because God knows you. So I explain all of that up front. And, uh, but yeah, you, I mean, you've got to listen to them before you can... Um, prescribe the the right biblical treatment, as it were. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You have to give them the the scriptures. Yes, different scriptures to to address maybe the sin issue, to address um, if you see pride, if you see a lot of folly, you're going to have to to address all of these scripturally and talk through these things. In fact, let's do that. Um, by going to the book of Proverbs and just looking at some scriptures here. So, um, Proverbs chapter 1 
I'm going to go through these fairly speedily. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here, therefore, knowledge and wisdom and instruction are the same thing. Do you see that? There's just a parallelism that's going on. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge of how to, the way to go. This is the way, you know, to go. Take it. But fools, a foolish person, will despise that knowledge. Despise that wisdom. Because in scripture, a fool is somebody who is told what's the right thing to do, what's the proper thing to do, what the right path is, and prefers another path. And that choice, which is a willful choice, makes them a fool. Okay? Again, look at verse 22. Fools hate knowledge. Fools hate knowledge. So you don't throw your pearls before swine, Jesus said. Okay, You need some discernment yourself. Chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding... Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her uh, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And the Lord gives wisdom and so on and so forth. Look at this, look at this uh, group of (laughs) instructions. If you receive my words, you've got to actually have your ears open. Jesus said, he that has the ears, let him hear. What did he mean? He means the ear is not just for hearing a bunch of sound, it's for paying attention. Paying attention to what Jesus said. Particularly to what God says. You treasure my commands. If you don't treasure the commands of God, you're not going to obey them. Because they're not important. Why aren't they important? Because you don't treasure them. (laughs) You don't value them. If If something is important to you, you value it. If you incline your ear, do you see the idea? You have to make some effort. Incline your ear. That means incline your ear away from all of the noise of the world the blizzard of signals out there, and listen to the clear words of God. Apply your heart to understanding. You see, the heart's deceitful, as we've seen. The heart is the problem, so you've got to incline your heart. You've got to apply it to get understanding. You've got to will against your sinful inclination. If you cry out for discernment, oh, by the way, that that last one, it's it's really important that we we are clear on this. It's really important because a lot of times when you tell a person to do something that they've not been in the habit of doing, they've been in the habit of doing the exact opposite, it's not easy for them to do it. 
it's not easy for them to, to break the habit of thinking and, and doing things, yes? But you've got to tell them to do it. And they can do it. You encourage them to do it because it's right, because it's proper, because it's beneficial, because it's wise. <clears throat> if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek for her as silver, search for her as for hidden treasures, then you'll find it. You'll understand the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. But it's, it's, um, it's all in God and it's all in his word. It's not in you and your word or your experience or some book you read. It's in God. You've got to relate the person to God. And you relate the person to God through his word. That's the only way you can relate a person to God. And that's what we're doing in, in this form of counselling. Okay, moving on. Uh, there's, there's a great deal of, of material. We'll go to chapter 9 of Proverbs. There's a great passage in the first six verses that, that uh, personifies wisdom as if um, wisdom is there as a uh, hostess and she's prepared everything and she's calling out, come. It's available. Wisdom's available. But verse 7 says, after that, it says, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. His discernment, that's necessary, do you see? Wisdom is available, but a scoffer and a wicked person, somebody who is uh, wicked in their intent, okay, you've got to identify them. If you have somebody who comes to you and they've got all kinds of problems, uh, oh, they claim to have problems, you're going to find, it might surprise you, but you're going to find that, that when you start digging and listening and you identify pride, for example, in them, and you talk to them about their pride, they are not going to respond well to you putting your finger on their problem. They'll often blame somebody else or something else, Someone they may get angry with you and say you don't understand, you're ignorant and so on. I'm going to see a professional. Fair enough, it's your money. But you don't need to, to expend your energies on a person like that. There's no point. You might want to help them, but you can't help them. They've got to be willing to listen to wisdom. So it says, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. So what does that make the scoffer? It makes him a fool, does it not? You see? A foolish person, a scoffer, is somebody who doesn't want to know. They might want to fix. They might think you can give them a quick fix. No, you can't give them a quick fix. You've got to deal with the 
the heart of the matter. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. This is what you're looking for. You're looking for a person who cares about truth and justice and the right path. Okay, You can help those people. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But you can't know the Holy One unless you really are prepared to face holiness. You've got to look it in the face. Verse 4 of chapter 10. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. How's that helpful for counselling a person? Two ways. First way is that you point to them that they must be diligent if they're going to uh, receive counsel, if they're going to um, get out of the rut they're in. They've got to be diligent. There's no lazy, you know, laying back in the bow of the boat, letting everybody else do the work and thinking that you're going to be okay with your problems. You've got to get up there and put some energy, some effort in. But also, in a different way, you're going to deal with people who are just plain lazy. And that's why they've got problems. They're lazy in their thinking. They're lazy in their doing. And you're going to have to point out to them, I'm sorry, but you're lazy. You're going to deal with people who uh, are depressed and maybe lonely, and you may have to say, well, when's the last time you took a bath? Believe it or not. I've had to say that to people. Okay? I've, I've count, I counseled somebody for six months trying to get them to just do basic things. They had a slight speech impediment. So uh, I tried to get them to open their mouth when they talked. Just I said, just practice opening your mouth. I said, my, my wife and kids, they go to a singing class. And before the singing class, uh, you know, some of you know Marilyn Simpson and, and so on, the, she has them parade up and down going, you know, opening their mouths, doing all of these silly uh, movements with their mouths and so on, so that they get the sound out. I said, that's a professional voice teacher does that, so that they can sing. So I said, that's what you need to do. You need to practice opening your mouth so these words can come out. So that you don't sound rude, you don't mumble. Do you see? Would he do it? No. Was he still the same? Yes, because I couldn't get him to actually be bothered to do these things. He wasn't diligent. He wasn't diligent in the way that he presented himself. He wasn't diligent in um, the way that... Because he was lonely and I felt sorry for him. And I said, well, these are ways... And they're true and honest and biblical ways. You've, you've got to not go out for yourself. You've got to value a person and really smile at them and say, how are you doing? 
Because if you do that with most people, they respond. Just be a nice guy. Just, just honestly care about people. Smile, make them feel better about it. You will find you'll get a response. That will change the way that you are in doing that. Lazy. So the hand of the diligent makes rich. rich. Um, verse 14 of chapter 10. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. So if you, if you hear a foolish person jabbering on, whether it's on TV or next to you and so on, realize, okay, that that's going to lead nowhere but to destruction. A wise person values knowledge and they store it up. And so that's important for a Christian because they use it in ministering it to other people. Verse 17, he who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. And you're going to have to let some people go and you're going to see their lives go astray. Because they didn't listen to your instruction. That's the way it is, you know. Verse 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Do you ever talk to a person... Uh, who has come to you for help or counsel and so on, and they won't shut up. They want to. They want to not only tell you about their issue. They want to tell you also about how to fix their issue. They're not going to listen to you. That's sin. You have to tell them. If you want to help them, you have to tell them. You're getting the idea that that. Counseling, biblical counseling is not this kind of dispassionate, um, I'll take some deep breaths. That's what some, per, what some guy with anger issues was told by a psychologist. Okay? Take some deep breaths, count to ten. I said, well, you can do that, but you need to stop doing it. You need to stop being angry. There's no excuse for it. Stop it. Now, are you ready to deal, to deal with how do you stop it? Are you ready to listen? And he was. A couple more here. Um, verse 32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Um, this is this way of thinking is you know, Jesus says from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Okay, so if you think about that, what this is doing is saying you listen to what they're saying and it will tell you what their heart is like. Uh, verse uh, chapter. 12 verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. You can't, um, can't work with stupid, or can't fix stupid, I think that's the, that's the phrase, isn't it? Um, 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. You may have to deal with a, a woman who comes to you uh, with gripes about her husband, and they may be 
good reasons that she has. But you may find in counselling between them that that uh, she's got a problem with nagging. Yeah, she's got a problem of criticising. Criticism, number one reason that marriages fail. Okay, criticism. Uh, men don't like to be criticised all the time. Do you know why, women? Do you know why? Not because they're, they're proud pigs. There are some proud pigs out there. But it's because they criticise themselves. It's because men are generally down on themselves and they don't need the person that uh, is supposed to be their helper, okay, being their conscience. They've got a conscience. And very often the, what you see, there, what they present to you is not the real person. Okay, Men put up uh, a show because they don't want people to see, you know, that they haven't got it all together. <laughs> you see? That's true, isn't it, guys? So, because of course they're not, they're putting up a, sh- a front there, so they're not admitting it, but. I mean, it's, it's, it's true, so, um, she's pulling the house, do you see? She's pulling the house down in her criticism. <clears throat> um, the best way to get something out of a guy, unless he's a arrogant so-and-so, for a, for a wife is to praise him is to find something that he did right instead of the 10 things he did wrong okay find the one thing he did right and praise him for it okay he'll die for you if you're like that kind of wife all right looking at the time here let's look at conscience um, here when we're looking at conscience, I'm going to uh, refer to a, a very good article called The Doctrine of Conscience by Roy Zuck. And uh, just so as a guide here, because it's very important that we understand about conscience. Uh, if I can choose a life verse, I don't think I have a life verse, but if I could choose a life verse, it would be... Um, Acts 23.1 Paul says, I have lived in all good conscience before God. And man, actually. Uh, I've, I've tried to do that. Not done it very well. But I've tried to do that. I've tried to have a clear conscience. And I want to talk about the conscience here. Um... First of all, the conscience is God-given. The conscience is immaterial. It's part of our spiritual makeup. Uh, the conscience is only useful if you're a sinner. <clears throat> but since we're all sinners, then we will agree that the conscience is helpful. <clears throat> what is the conscience? Well, it is not the Holy Spirit. Okay? It is not the Holy Spirit. It's not the same as the Holy Spirit. The conscience is not always right. Somebody who's grown up in a, a, a Hindu uh, culture may think that sacrificing a cow is terrible, but sacrificing their child is not, in the Ganges, is not 
terrible. Do you see? So, the conscience is, it's not infallible. Okay? It can be twisted, it's distorted. And yet, it's something that's very important. It's something that we, we need to uh, understand when we're counselling. Because we're trying to get to a person's conscience. We're trying to find out where the, what state their conscience is in. If they, uh, they have a conscience about their sin, for example. If they have a conscience, um, if you're dealing with a man and wife situation, or maybe an abuse situation, you're, you have to figure out what a person thinks about these things. Okay, um, you're pretty. You you. It, it won't take you very long to to know whether a person is sorry for what they've done, because you'll see it. Um. So, the the conscience basically does several things. It distinguishes the morally right and wrong. It urges individuals to do what they recognize as the right thing. It also passes judgment on acts uh, that that they uh, believe are wrong. So it's, it's a monitor. It has to be kept. It has to be carefully guarded. Um, you can have a weak conscience, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. You can defile your conscience, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. You can sear your conscience with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4, 2. You can even have an evil conscience, Hebrews 10, 22. So, be careful to guard your conscience. I want to say a, a personal word here um, about about the conscience and maybe this will hit home with, with some of you. Um, so I've, I've been in the mix, midst of several battles <laughs> in my Christian life within the Christian community. And some people have, um, I think it's right to say, sinned quite egregiously against me. Uh, why do I say that? Because I'm the victim? No. Um, I've sinned against other people and, and uh, um, I've had to go back and apologize and ask forgiveness quite a few times, actually. But but uh, the people that... that, that um, sinned against me, um, many of these people have never, ever apologized. In fact, they've never even thought to apologize. According to them, it seems that they, you know, they thought what they did, even though they may have lied intentionally, even though they may have gone out of their way, they didn't need to, but they went out of their way to malign and hurt, uh, they don't think there's anything wrong. How did a person who is a Christian get like that? Can a person who is a Christian get like that? Oh yes. Oh yes. So can you, so can I. If we do not watch our conscience. 
Um, let me kind of draw it this way. I like to, to think about it this way. So in our lives, in our Christian lives particularly, we're going along, okay, happy as can be, and all of a sudden we are presented with a uh, choice. The choice is to do the right thing or maybe the easy thing or uh, perhaps the popular thing or the cool thing. Yeah, go with the herd or whatever. The right thing often means you go alone. The right thing often means it's a more difficult path. Okay? It might cost, you might have to sacrifice things, friends or, you know, associations in order to do the right thing. So very often what people will do, particularly when it comes to um, church careers, when it comes to... um, turning a blind eye to what they know is sin in the church, for example, um, they'll take the easy path. Yes? You've seen this? Have you seen this? Have you yourself been confronted by this kind of thing? Where you've had to choose to do the difficult thing because it was right, rather than go with everybody else. Okay? Many people who have been Christians for a while know this very well. But have you noticed that, uh, where's my blue pen gone? Here we are. Have you noticed that these people who take this route, and we'll draw one of them here, that you may see them years later. Okay, and you, you uh, talk to them, and it's like, they don't want to go, they've changed. Um, they don't want to go and talk about certain things with you. Um, it's like with other people, they will talk about truth and the importance of truth, okay? But then there are glaring things that they, you know that you cannot get them to see. There are things that they're doing wrong or things that they've done wrong and they, it's as if that's not an issue for them. Yeah, It's like they don't have a conscience in that area. Or maybe it's somebody that um, you've known for for a while and there's a church split and uh, they choose the opposite side to your choice. That happens, okay? I mean, you don't see things perfectly, they don't see things perfectly, it happens. But, perhaps you've seen that person then turn against you, get very antagonistic, lie about you, be very vindictive against you. And it's like you didn't, you can't understand why they're doing this. 
Okay? It's because they have been confronted by a choice to do the right thing or the easy thing and they've chosen to do the easy thing. Now, when they do that, their conscience will bother them all the way down the path until they do this. They're looking for this. That's a long word. They're looking to justify their decision. Because unless they can justify their decision, they're going to be bothered by their conscience. So now they're going to lie to themselves. That it was all right to do that. And they're going to, when they do that, and they, they believe their own lie, their own justification for being mean, or lying, or whatever it might be, um, in a, several situations it's been, uh, that I've seen, and certainly, it's, it's certainly not most of the Christians that I've known in ministry, but, but some of them I've, I've caught stealing. Uh, some of them, uh, I have, uh, um, they have used other people to get to a position and then kind of, <clears throat> You know, squish them afterwards. Uh, I, I've known all kinds of things. They have, uh, um, for example, you know, had a public um, flambeing of that person when they said that they wouldn't do it, but they've done it anyway without that person being present. And they justify themselves for doing that. And they believe that justification and they don't have a conscience about it anymore. I mean, they kind of do when you meet them down the road, but then they don't. You know, when if you talk to them or somebody else talks to them, it's like, no, I did what was, it was the right thing, you know, that person. And they believe their justification. They don't have a conscience about it because they've sinned against their conscience. That's why Paul says... I always try to keep a clear conscience before God and man. He gets smacked for it, for saying that. Do you remember that? But um, it's very important to make sure that when these choices come, the difficult choices to do the right thing or the easy thing, that you are determined that the only choice for you for conscience sake, is to do the right thing. And this is important when you're dealing with um, with somebody in a counselling situation. It's important in several ways, but, but here's two ways. First of all, it may be that when you're dealing with uh, somebody in a counselling situation who's got issues and you're talking to them, they might bring up something that makes you feel convicted. <laughs> you may be convicted about something, they bring something up that's happened in their lives, and it's like God is saying, you did that. Okay? Pay attention to it, folks. Pay attention to it, okay? It's not weakness. I mean, you don't, you don't spill the beans with them, but you might even say, you know what? As you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, I've done something like that too. 
And, and God convicted me about that. So I'm going to have to do some of the things I'm going to tell you. But another way that this is helpful is, is that when you're talking to a, somebody and they, they don't, just don't see what the issue is. Like, I don't have to do anything. I'm not the problem. This person's the problem. Fix this person. That's why I came here, so you can fix this person. You're going to have to be aware that you have to deal with their conscience. Yes, it's pride, and we'll deal with pride, but, but you're also dealing with their conscience, and so you're going to have to kind of tailor some of your dealings with them so that you can try to get to their conscience in your questioning or in some of your, the homework that you give them to do. Do you see? So you're allowing God to work on their conscience by some of the things that you give them to do. All right? Any questions on that? Of this? Oh, 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 all kinds of things. Okay. Um, top of my head, okay, so uh, that means that I might be controversial. <laughs> but um, the decision to... I'm not saying all of these are, are wrong or sinful, but the, the decision to build a new auditorium, okay, and go into debt... The decision to um, uh, throw out the hymn books. The decision to um, change the preaching from expository preaching to a more lively, topical preaching with overheads and videos. Okay? Uh, The decision to... Instead of, uh, this is more subtle, but very common. The decision to follow a man rather than follow God. Follow a celebrity. So that celebrity is, is above criticism now in that person's eyes. All of these are sins against the conscience. And there's so many more that we could talk about, yes? Uh, money is always an issue here. Okay, The decision to be covetous for example, and do your business dealings in a way that maximizes your uh, your cash flow instead of doing what you know is the right thing, even though it might affect your cash flow. I mean, there's just a multitude of these of these different scenarios, and we've got to be on you know on the watch for them. We've got to be careful for them. Um, here's another one. Uh, so. Uh, a man and a wife are arguing and the man gets angry and he's got you know his pride is affected and he's hurt and uh, you know he's hurt more than he shows and he's got to do the right thing his conscience should tell him you know what, there's absolutely no excuse. You were in the flesh for what you said there. 
instead of justification saying, yeah, but she said to me, she hurt me. It doesn't matter. Okay? The conscience is saying, yeah, but you did wrong. So you put right what you did wrong. You go and apologize, whether she apologizes or not. That person that hurt you, okay? Maybe you sinned against them, but they sinned against me terribly. That's between them and God. You can't do anything about that, but did you do something wrong? You go and you apologize. Not, you don't apologize for what you didn't do. <laughs> you apologize for what you did do. Say, so maybe, I've harbored resentment against you for many years. You might have to say to a person, because your conscience is bothering you about it. Rather than justifying to yourself your resentment or your bitterness. Is it, are you seeing this? All of this is important because uh, it's very important that, that when we're dealing with a person, if, if you detect that there is a wicked conscience or a seared conscience, you know, that they're keeping something buried, okay, and you, you sense there's something there, you've got to try and expose it and get them to, to vocalize it to God, ask forgiveness, and maybe to somebody else that they've hurt. These are all important things.